So we're in Micah, and last time I believe we finished chapter 3, which brings us to chapter 4 in the normal course of things. Just to sort of recap, one of the things that was going on in chapter 3, the prophet is going after the elites in Israel. The priests, the prophets, judges, all those kind of folks. And at the end of it, he says that he's going to sand Jerusalem off and it will become like a plowed field. Everything is going. And so the question that should be asked is, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If it's the elites that are going bad, how come the whole thing gets sanded down and everybody suffers? And the point I made last time is elites set the tone for a country. To use an example, our idiots in Hollywood, they're all over the social media, news media, everything else. That's, I mean, that's a job, you know, they get paid for being popular. They have lots and lots of resources. So if some Hollywood starlet decides that she's going to be he or going to go into serial monogamy and get divorced every 20 minutes and get a new guy or any of those kinds of things, they have enough resources so that that kind of behavior doesn't send them into the ditch. But the problem is everybody who watches these folks thinks, ooh, that's cool. I can trade off husbands or wives anytime I want, and I can swap my sex out whenever I want, and it's all okay because look at them. The beautiful people are all doing it. What happens then is the entire society becomes corrupt, dragged along in the wake of the elites. So in chapter 3, he's going after the elites big time, but at the end he says, all right, everything's going. And the reason everything is going to include the lower classes is because the lower classes see the elites behaving that way and try and do it themselves. So that takes us on to chapter 4. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion the Torah shall flow, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Stop there for just a second. This is one of the songs that we sing. Wonderful song. Obviously, this is something that is going to happen after the Babylonian captivity and the restoration. I will tell you that rabbinic commentaries that I have read say this is being fulfilled now because Jerusalem has been reestablished. They have established their synagogues and they have established their schools and the word of the Lord is going out from Jerusalem. Now, I happen to think that a lot of this is yet future because there's a bunch of stuff that isn't happening yet. But I will tell you that the rabbis and the Jews see this as beginning with the current situation in Israel. Just so you're aware of that. The other thing that is interesting about it is we're going to switch back and forth depending on how far we get today. The nations coming up to the mountain of the Lord 
to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. That would indicate that the nations will come to know God, our God, not small g God, capital G God. And later on, what it's going to say is the nations will follow their own gods, but it'll be in peace. One of the things about prophecy, of course, is they switch time contexts very often without letting you know what they just did. It happens all the time. So unpacking the time context of some of this can be very difficult. So verse 3, he will judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now, the reason I think we've switched time context here is one of the things that happens at the end of the millennial reign, when Yeshua comes down and sets up shop in Jerusalem and runs the place with a rod of iron for a thousand years. At the end of that time, Satan is loosed. He deceives the nations and convinces them to take a run at Jerusalem, and there you have the Battle of Armageddon. So the idea of nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore, I'm not sure whether that's the situation during the thousand-year reign or whether that's New Jerusalem stuff. Sorting out time context is difficult. The idea of beating swords into plowshares, that is the reverse of Joel 3.10. Joel 3 starts with, Behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That's the valley of judgment. And I will enter into judgment with them on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel because they have scattered them among the nations and divided them up in my land. So now if you scroll down, we hit a poetic section that begins in verse 9. Proclaim among the nations, consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. So the idea here is Jerusalem has been reestablished, and I'm suggesting this may be millennial kingdom stuff. Jerusalem's reestablished, but the nations are going to come up against her. And what the poetic section says is take these plowshares that you've been using and beat them into swords and let's go at it. So Micah 4 is the flip, if you will, of Joel 3. And by the way, swords and pruning hooks, as far as I know, those are the only two places they are married together like that. And one is the reverse of the other. To give you some historical context, during... The Middle Ages, one of the things that would fairly routinely happen is somebody would come and besiege a city, and the city would take all of their bronze statues, melt them down, and recast them into cannons. So I regard pruning hooks and swords as being metaphorical. In other words, take 
things that are tools and useful and productive and turn them into weapons of war. I really don't see that the whole thing is going to be settled with swords and pruning hooks. I see it as metaphorical, although I don't know. I don't know what the millennial reign is going to be like. Maybe Christ, when he comes back, will say, shut Facebook down. It's an abomination. Actually, if you read Zechariah, it is a very good description in biblical terms of a modern fighter bomber carrying a nuclear weapon to Iran. Your translation will be, there's a woman in a basket with a lead cover. Well, woman and fire are the same word. So a fire in a basket with a lead cover is a nuclear weapon. It is being carried by something with like a stork with two fires under it. And so that looks very much like a modern fighter bomber carrying a nuclear weapon. And, and as Kay said, Gog and Magog war, where the nations come up against Israel and are going to be destroyed. And you're going to have specialists going through the land cleaning up the bodies. In other words, you're going to have specialists marking people who have died from either radiation poisoning or chemical weapons, and the bodies are still physically dangerous. So you're going to have specialists go mark those so that special decontamination teams can go clean up. And it furthermore says that for some number of years, Israel will burn the weapons for power which indicates dud nuclear weapons. In other words, a nuclear weapon that comes in but doesn't go nuclear. You have just received a gift of several pounds of fissionable material, which can be used to run a reactor. So yeah, there's all sorts of stuff like that in Scripture. So all the way down to verse 4. Micah 4.4. 4. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Where all people walk, each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Notice the difference there. We started off with the nations coming to Jerusalem to learn the law of the Lord. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. The nations are saying that. But then you get down to verse 5. All people walk each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Now, there's a couple of ways you can take that. Way number one is, in fact, not everybody is going to come up, and there's going to be people who don't. That's a perfectly acceptable explanation. Another way to look at it, I am right now reading 1 Samuel in my normal reading. And one of the things that happens in 1 Samuel is they're having a battle at Apec, which is the choke point on the coastal plain where you have a marsh and so forth, and it's a narrow place, it's called Apec. And typically what happens is the Israelites come down from the mountains and the Philistines try and come up, and that choke point canalizes the Philistines. It's sort of a good place to mount an attack against a mounted enemy. So the Israelites get beaten, and they fall back into their camp, and they send back up, and they say, all right, let's go get the Ark of the Lord. And Hopney and Phineas, who are Eli's rotten sons, 
bring the ark of the Lord down. And when the ark of the Lord gets into the camp, the Israelites raise this mighty, tremendous shout that the ark of the Lord is in our camp now. We can't lose. They terrify the Philistines. The Philistines say, how on earth can we possibly win now that they have the God who brought them out of Egypt in their camp? That's the attitude of the Philistines about the ark coming into the camp of Israel. It terrifies them. Now, they also sort of gird up their loins and saying, you know, man up here, we got to go do this. And they go in and clobber the Israelites and capture the ark and Hophni and Phinehas die and all that kind of stuff. Didn't work. But the point I'm making here, the nations going up to the mountain of the Lord to learn the law of God may be in the same vein as the Philistines fearing the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and wanting to learn his ways, even if they don't worship him and they continue to worship their own gods. Because you have this juxtaposition back there in verse 2, where it says all the nations are going to come up here and learn the ways of the Lord. And they're going to walk according to Torah. And of course, you all have been around long enough that you recognize the Torah is given by God to the people he loves so that their lives will go well. Anybody who walks in Torah will find that his life is better. That's what it's designed to do. give you another example. The law of Hammurabi. Hammurabi was the king of the first Babylonian empire. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of the subsequent Babylonian empire. Hammurabi is known worldwide as a wise lawgiver. And you have people studying the law of Hammurabi for ideas on how to set up the laws in their own country. And it's the same with the Torah, the law of Moses. The United States, for example, set up the Constitution based on the Torah. So the idea of the nations coming to study the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, especially since he has just reconstituted and reestablished the Hebrew people in Jerusalem, you could look at it that way as them studying this God without actually becoming worshipers of the God. We're all the way down to verse 6. In that day, and many commentators of Scripture believe in that day is code word for the day of the Lord. Sometimes I agree and sometimes I'm not sure, but I'm just letting you know that that's one of the things that you'll find. Many commentators will say that in that day is referring to the day of the Lord. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame, I will gather the outcast, and those whom I have afflicted, and I will make the lame a remnant, and the outcast a strong nation. So the Lord will reign over them on Mount Zion, from now on even forever. And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. By the way, I don't have any problem with this referring to the day of the Lord, when Yeshua comes back and reestablishes the kingdom and so forth. But the idea here, of course, is metaphorically and probably physically, I don't know, but certainly at least metaphorically, the afflicted and the lame is a way of saying that Israel has no power. 
Israel is scattered among the nations. They have no power as a political entity. And so these become the afflicted and the lame who God himself afflicted because God's the one that sent them into exile. So then bringing them back is a God act. Just like sending them into exile was a God act. And he'll reestablish the kingdom in Jerusalem. Verse 9. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in your midst? Has your counselor perished? For pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. All right, now we've shifted focus. So verse 7 and 8 are talking about the day of the Lord when Jerusalem is reestablished. Now he's switched context and he's talking to present day Israel. And what he's saying is, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in your midst? Has your counselor perished? For pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. In other words, we are on the verge of the Assyrian invasion. The Assyrian invasion happens during the time Micah is writing. You've got three chunks of Micah, and it isn't clear that they were all written in 20 minutes. You may have three separate prophecies. So the idea here is Israel, the northern kingdom, is terrified because the Assyrian Empire is coming down and they're going to be destroyed. Jerusalem, the Judean Empire, is also terrified because by the end of the Assyrian invasion, the Assyrians will in fact lay siege against Jerusalem. And it's only the direct intervention of God that is going to change that. What I'm saying is verses 7 and 8 are talking about something way future, Back down to verse 9, and we're talking about present tense from Micah's perspective. And again, the idea here is all your government structures are going to be destroyed. You're going to be terrified, and things are really going to be bad. Verse 10. Be in pain, and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. For now you shall go forth from the city. You shall dwell in the field, and to Babylon you shall go. There you shall be delivered. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Obviously what's going on here is he's saying things are really bad right now. At this point you can assume the northern kingdom has been sanded off. He's now prophesying as does Jeremiah about the southern kingdom going. And the southern kingdom goes to Babylon whereas the northern kingdom is dispersed into Assyria. And what he's saying is, I'm the one that's sending you into exile. It is going to be terribly unpleasant, but that is where I will redeem you from. God's perspective is not our perspective. We tend to be focused on what's happening to me right now or in the next 20 minutes, which is fine. That's not God's perspective. That's one of the valuable things about prophecy is God gives us a peek at his perspective. You are listening to Micah and Babylon has just conquered the Assyrian Empire and Babylon is heading west and they're heading towards you and they're going to go down to Egypt. At that point you could be forgiven perhaps if you were a little bit terrified. And so what he's saying is you're going to Babylon. 
but I will redeem you. And when he says, I will redeem you, he's talking about the nations, not necessarily individual Israelites. They're going to be in Babylon for at least 70 years. So first off, you're going to have casualties during the invasion. You're going to have many of the people who are taken to Babylon are going to die in Babylon of old age. So when he says, I will redeem you, he's talking about the nation. He's not talking to any particular individual. Another example is Abraham was promised the land, and by the time he died, he had one son and enough space in the land to bury his wife. That was the extent of the fulfillment of the promise during Abraham's life. By the end of this time, Israel is like the sand of the sea. They have got millions of people. They own the entire land. And of course, then they go and mess it up. But the point is, the prophecy gets fulfilled, but not in Abraham's lifetime. So, as I say, God's perspective is not our perspective. And as you're reading this, you sort of need to keep that in mind. And by the way, one other thing that I ought to say, uh, lest anybody get the wrong impression. The way I have been talking, you could infer that God doesn't care about individuals. That's not correct. Individuals are going to perish during the invasion. Individuals are going to die natural deaths in Babylon. And many of the people reading this prophecy are never going to see it fulfilled. We are probably never going to see most of it fulfilled. It's been thousands of years. That doesn't mean that God is not interested in us individually. He's got two perspectives. One is the relationship that he has with believers, but the other one is the relationship he has with nations. And one of the things that God promises, and, and poster child for that, is Ephesians chapter 1. And what Ephesians chapter 1 says is that the Holy Spirit is your earnest, your marker, your claim check, that you in fact have a place in the world to come, that you will be raised from the dead and you will receive an inheritance, even though you personally don't see that inheritance before you pass from this life. So I don't want to leave the impression that God is just knocking over Israelites like ten pins and doesn't care what happens. He does. But it's two levels of concern and it's two levels of understanding of prophecy. One is what's happening to the nation. The other one is what's happening to individual Israelites. Verse 11. Now also many nations have gathered against you. Now remember we're talking present tense here from Micah's perspective. So we're talking present tense from the siege of Jerusalem, if you will. Verse 11, Now also many nations have gathered against you, who say, Let her be defiled. Let our eye look upon Zion. And by the way, let her be defiled. Let our eye look upon Zion. What we're talking about is a woman who has been undressed and is being displayed publicly. That's what that metaphor means. When it says, let us look on Zion, we're talking about that kind of a, an image. And God uses that image. So 11 again. Now also many nations have gathered against you who say, let her be defiled. 
let our eye look upon Zion, for they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, nor do they understand his counsel. For he will gather them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Who is them? The nations that come up against Israel. And he says other places in scripture, you Israel have played the harlot. And what I'll do is I'll strip you naked and run you through the streets and shame you in front of everybody. So he uses that metaphor in a number of places. And then what he's saying is that's going to happen to you because of Babylon. But what the nations don't understand is their behavior is causing them at some future time to be gathered up and I will deal with them. You might reasonably ask, the Lord has used the Assyrian Empire, he's used the Babylonian Empire, he's used the Roman Empire to chasten his own people. So if you look at the history of Babylon, for example, where it says in Jeremiah it's going to be 70 years, 70 years is actually the exact length of time that the Babylonian Empire exists. What happens is God raises up the Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar. They take out Judah and Jerusalem. 70 years later, that empire is gone. It's done. It is conquered by the Medes and the Persians. So God raised them up, marched them down to Judah, used them to take Judah out, and then when they were done with that, terminated them. The question you may reasonably ask is, if God caused all this to happen, why is he upset with the nations for doing what he told them to do? I raised you up to deal with my people Israel, but you were way too enthusiastic about what you did. And that is the thing that is going to upset me, not that you did what you did, but because you engaged in unnecessary roughness in that process. Same thing with Egypt. God decrees that they're going down to Egypt. But he didn't say anything about killing all the male children down in Egypt. So when Egypt takes out all the male children, that rightly annoys God, and he will have recompense for that. He does not have recompense for the fact that Israel goes down there and is in exile for a while. So in verse 12 again, But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord nor do they understand his counsel, for he will gather them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Whenever you see a threshing floor in Scripture, what you are talking about is judgment and recompense. And we have several threshing floors mentioned in Scripture. In fact, the temple of the Lord is built on a threshing floor. It's built on the threshing floor of Aruna, which David purchased And that's where the temple is set up, is on a threshing floor. Verse 13. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples. I will consecrate their gain to the Lord, their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. So what he's saying is, I am using these empires to correct you. I will then turn around and use you to deal with those empires who have gone beyond the warrant that I gave them. Metaphorically in scripture, a horn is a symbol of power. You have the beast with ten horns and all that kind of stuff. A horn is a symbol of power. So go to the book of Daniel, for example. 
and you have a ram with two horns, and one horn is stronger than the other, and so forth. But the idea of horns then is an expression of power or strength. Hooves of iron, I am going to suggest one of the things that he talks about. If you look at how grain was threshed in the ancient world, they would take an ox, an animal, and have him pull a threshing sled around in a circle and thresh the grain. And, and there's sort of two metaphors. One is your threshing sled will have teeth of iron, your threshing sled will have sharp teeth, and I'm suggesting that perhaps the hooves of the animal that is pulling the threshing thread, being bronze, is again a symbol of we're going to deal with them. Hardness, power, sternness. Biblical metaphors sometimes can be obscure. One of them we talked about is in that day. That seems to be a metaphor for the day of the Lord. Threshing floors represent judgment. Those metaphors are used pretty consistently throughout Scripture. Let me start on chapter 5 because in my translator's breakdown, the first verse of chapter 5 goes with the end of chapter 4. So we'll read that and then we'll break at 5-2. Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. What happens is Judah is besieged three times, Jerusalem. First time they are besieged by the Assyrians. That's the one where God himself slays a whole bunch of Assyrian troops and the siege is broken. The next time he is besieged by Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar's siege does in fact result in the conquest of Jerusalem and that's when Daniel and all those folks are carted off to Babylon. Jerusalem remains standing. The nation of Judah is conquered and becomes a vassal state to Babylon. Then we have a rebellion that takes place where Jerusalem rebels against the Babylonians. And that results in the third siege of Jerusalem where Nebuchadnezzar comes back and destroys the place, destroys the temple, destroys the temple mount. To this day, you have the blocks of the temple mount, which are in heaps at the foot of the temple mount. And the Jews say, when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us what to do with them, because we don't know because they're holy. They were part of the temple. He takes all of the instruments and all of the gold and silver, all of that kind of stuff, and the temple is flat. So that's the third siege of Jerusalem. I don't know whether 5.1 is talking about the second or the third siege. But the idea of gathering your troops, which is to say, in the face of an invasion, if you can't beat your enemy in the field, if he's too strong for you to go out and meet him in the field with your army and take him on head to head, the next step is you bring all your troops into the city and you close your gates and you try and wait him out. We're not strong enough to win this war on our own. What we're going to do is hope that they get tired and go home. Sieges in that part of the world would last for years. This is not a 20-minute affair. It would go on for years. So, for example, Hezekiah, when he was getting ready for a siege, made an aqueduct 
from the upper spring into Jerusalem so they wouldn't run out of water. Et